Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And hopefully that music got you to get up and move your ass. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's what uh, we're trying to tell Assad. I don't know if Dennis Rodman can uh, pull off some diplomacy uh, in Syria. <clears throat> Maybe uh, the sight of Dennis Rodman will <laughs> realize that he's scarier than the weapons of mass destruction. Well, I thought it was bizarre that they... Because uh, he was in North Korea last week. Right, right. Um, but Charlie Rose, one of the driest, most dud uh, news uh, commentators. Why his interview show is so long running, I can't understand. The man does not do good interviews. They should have dropped Charlie Rose on Assad. Instead yeah. of just CBS sent him there for an interview, I guess. The, the guy just does not know how to do... A, 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 proper interview well yeah and he's been mainly on pbs throughout his career so maybe assad is behind the times <laughs> thinks he thinks that the uh, <clears throat> the elite uh, intellectuals are uh, watching but whatever yeah the assad uh, merry-go-round continues hopefully uh, perhaps this late breaking news that the russians uh by way of john Kerry, are are you know may, maybe he'll get rid of his chemical weapons and this whole uh exercise will fall by the wayside it's an interesting proposal because actually according to the new york times the russians actually ran the plan by Kerry before they went public with yeah. it so this looks like a, a sort of a, a good faith collaborative effort um and this may in fact be a way out of at least this aspect of the crisis uh, the chemical weapons usage and the threat of a retaliatory U.S. strike against them. But let's face it, we're still dealing with, even if the Russians can get Assad to relinquish his chemical weapons, we're still dealing with an ongoing three years running civil war. Yeah, and of course, it's, it's um, you know, it's obviously a human tragedy. I, I think that Nicholas Kristof's uh, column in yesterday's New York Times is interesting because he's a fairly reliable liberal who is starting to lean in the uh, direction of, of uh, this limited strike. And I think that the media at this point has done a very poor job of uh, really presenting honestly what's actually going on here. This is a lot of political posturing by a lot of, what did the Salinger movie open this weekend? A lot of phonies. Uh, I don't know if Marco Rubio is going to survive his no vote. Um, I guess he's figuring that Rand Paul is his main constituents, uh, his his main constituency battle within the Republican Party. But when you start hearing this word of isolationism um, being used to describe the schism that's occurring within the Republican Party, I think it's quite interesting that this Syria congressional vote. Uh, upcoming this week, apparently the Senate is going to convene debate on <clears throat> Wednesday, and I suspect that Obama will at least get approval from the Senate uh, to uh, enact this policy that I think has been outlined fairly clearly and fairly straightforwardly. Uh, I used the word subterfuge last week, and I noticed that John Kerry even used that word this week. Hmm. And I think that Kerry has been... Uh, legitimate in this whole crusade uh, and it is a crusade of sorts this is not war per se war without going into all the complex definition definitions of it 
would not be what the United States is planning, which is clearly uh, airstrikes from naval uh, vessels, aircraft carriers uh, in the Mediterranean that Assad would have no uh, capability of preventing. The question for Assad is, is he going to go the way of Saddam Hussein, you know, who uh, clearly flaunted uh, international law himself, or is he going to go for a survival uh, and hang on here for a while? Uh, he's not quite dead yet. <laughs> uh, so he's hanging on, and obviously the civil war in Syria is a protracted stalemate uh, at the moment. Uh, and it will probably continue that way for quite some time. Uh, I think that critics and sensible people in the, shall we say, Council of Foreign Relations are quite accurate in portraying this as a proxy war. This is clearly a Sunni-Shiite battle, and of course we all know that the Assad family represents a minority wing of the Syrian populace, the Alawite mm -hmm. sect. And uh, Kerry, I believe, as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that he chaired until he resigned recently to become the Secretary of State, I think even met directly with Assad um, early on in the crisis. So John Kerry has uh, plenty of credibility here, and I, the th words that keep troubling me about the debate here in America in which the media is portraying, I keep worrying about the word credibility, and I keep worrying about America's strategic interests. Because I don't think either one is at play here. I think that this is a simple war crime that, it, you know, you can honestly say deserves a response by the international com uh, community. And the United Nations was set up uh, during the closing months of the Second World War. It was essentially outlined in... Uh, at the Dumberton Oaks Conference in Washington in the fall of 1944, that became the broad outline of the United Nations. And, of course, the flaw with the United Nations uh, setup was that five members of the Security Council, permanent members, uh, China, France, Great Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union at the time, now Russia, uh, was never going to unanimously agree on right. policies. Uh, so the veto mechanism was always going to prevent a massive UN intervention, per se. Uh, the Korean War, for instance, was technically a UN action, but it wouldn't have been possible under the UN charter had the Soviets not walked out. Um, they walked out of, the, out of the Security Council in protest, and Truman and Ad Dean Acheson at the time were able to get unanimous agreement on the Korean War, which was technically a UN-mandated war. Uh, despite aspects of, uh, you know, the anti-communism. Well, and thus its component. designation as a police action. Yeah, and it's, it's often called now the Forgotten War because almost as many American soldiers died in Korea as died in Vietnam, and Americans hear very little about it. I think that one of the most interesting... Um, I was sort of paging through a book that was recommended uh, by uh, Sidney Fine, the uh, emeritus uh, professor here at the University of Michigan, one of the great uh, historians of American history, uh, called The Isolationist Impulse, Its 20th Century Reaction by Selig 
Adler. This book was written in the late 1950s uh, while the Cold War was still hot. <laughs> but in one of the most important aspects of, he goes into the history of isolationism, Wilson's problems with the uh, League of Nations, Treaty of Versailles, and all that. And next year, of course, will be the 100th anniversary of the start of World War I. But one of the most important officials in the American government that changed their position from isolation to internationalism, per se, isolationism, was uh, Arthur Vandenberg, the Michigan senator. Uh, in 1941, he had actually led opposition to Lend-Lease uh, that uh, passed through Congress in early 1941 as a mechanism in which the United States directly gave aid to Great Britain, uh, who at the time of the, of, uh, the Second World War was the only major ally uh, still in the game. Uh, Adolf Hitler had not invaded the Soviet Union yet. That was yet to come. And Lend-Lease was extended to uh, the Soviet Union uh, following Hitler's invasion. But it's very interesting that on the 10th of January, on the eve of the Yalta Conference, Arthur Vandenberg expressed his, in a, in, a, in a memorable speech, his support for the United Nations. And he had actually flipped uh, 100 degrees uh, while the war went on. And Adler observes in the uh, paper that, <clears throat> um, in, in the book, I should say, that, um, and he writes that, um, Vandenberg was heavily influenced, quote, no doubt by his nephew, General Hoyt S. Vandenberg, who was high in the command circles of the Army Air Forces, which helped him convince that oceans could not bar an air attack on the New World. In 1941, Arthur Vandenberg was a generalissimo of the senatorial coalition that opposed the Lend-Lease Bill. Within the next two years, he had moved to a position where he tried to reconcile enlightened selfishness with a general idealism in foreign affairs. He said, I'm hunting for a middle ground between the extremists. Arthur Vandenberg briefly attended the University of Michigan and was a lifelong resident of Grand, of Grand Rapids, where he edited a newspaper. I'm going to guess he was a Republican. Oh, yes. Republicans, of course, uh, in the build-up to World War II, were very resistant to FDR's attempts to get America on the uh, side of the British. Yeah, and indeed this book is very useful in understanding the isolationist impulse, as the title suggests, whereby there was a coalition of... New Deal Democrats, mainly Westerners and Midwesterners, mm -hmm. who were very skeptical of, uh, quote, the European continent. This was from the disillusionment with World War I. All of the wars that were fought in Europe during the 19th century over small pieces of land, <laughs> the kinds of pieces of land that Woody Allen <laughs> so memorably characterized in the movie Love and Death. <laughs> um... And the Congress actually passed overwhelmingly in the mid-30s several neutrality bills that mm. prevented uh, Roosevelt from getting involved in the right. Ethiopian-Italian um, conflict or the Spanish Civil War. 
And that these were massive uh, two-thirds votes because all of the Republicans and many of the New Deal Democrats from the South and the West and the Midwest would vote against uh, any entangling wars in Europe. And right. Roosevelt had to go behind their backs, so to speak, to, uh, to assist uh, the British. Uh, he came up with a, a loan program, a lease program that was technically unconstitutional. So looking at Rand Paul uh, quivering while questioning John Kerry last week <laughs> reminded me that this, this uh, falling back on the U.S. Constitution, as the uh, Tea Party is now so prone to do, is really phony. <laughs> uh, the Constitution was written in the, in, in the, in the uh, 18th century. Uh, when it took three months to get mail from Europe mm -hmm. to America. Uh, times have changed. We have instantaneous communication now. <laughs> um, bombers can be flown from St. Louis. Missouri, uh, the B-2 bomber, uh, has attacked Iraq. <laughs> well, and uh, as your example from uh, Selig Adler's uh, The Isolationist Impulse shows, that Vandenberg's transition really has more to do with a guy's awareness of, oh, my previous position was dictated primarily by uh, party ideology. Yeah. Uh, not and, his, and his upbringing. Yeah. Small town, right. Midwest. Uh, and the actual experiences of the war, especially talking with a guy who was involved, you know, firsthand in the orchestration and planning thereof, you realize, oh, wait a minute, America can't be isolationist we need to be more active and participatory in the events of the world and indeed you know uh, Vandenberg's one of the reasons that he was such a crucial switch a vote switcher so to speak and had a, a very influential um, role in the actual drafting of the UN documents as well as he was actually a delegate to the UN conference in April of 1945 was that he had written a book in the mid-20s uh, expressing uh, profound nationalism. And I find it absolutely outrageous that there are Republicans who supported the Iraq War. Right. And we talked about this last week, that 91% of Republicans in polls supported the Iraq War, uh, which had no justification whatsoever, uh, and was clearly designed by uh, George Bush as a re-election uh, gadget. Um, since we live in the gadget era, um, that 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 um, that they would oppose Obama simply because he's of the opposite party. Right. Where is their uh, nationalistic interest? I don't buy that America has any national interest in attacking Syria, but I certainly buy into the argument that uh, Geneva Conventions that have signed prohibiting the use of chemical weapons are a valid reason to punish and deter Syria from further evidence. And if this successfully works in terms of forcing Assad to give up his chemical stockpiles, fine. Of course, it's a little bit ironic and not too surprising that yesterday's New York Times had a front page story about how Assad got these chemical weapons. The supplier of the monoethylene glycol the supplier is a, quote, unidentified Dutch company. The potassium cyanide, a precursor to chemical weapons, an unnamed U.S. business. Um, Newcastle disease vaccine, 
which treats Newcastle disease, an avian virus that can be transmitted to humans, a biological agent that poses uh, the greatest threat to poultry farming, comes from the main biological laboratories. I'm assuming we're talking about the state of Maine. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, This past year, by the way, I think both you and I were at that film about the Syrian chicken farms. Oh, yes. (laughs) Ironic. Uh, So we know who supplied uh, the weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Western corporations profit from this sort of, uh, what what did Kerry use? Obscene uh, conduct. Well, and of course, George Bush's war was all about putting American uh, contractors and corporations in the driver's seat. Uh, the U.S. military, you know, turned over uh, even simple things like supply issues and even food to these corporations. Uh, so it became just a feeding trough uh, for those with connections. Another very interesting thing, and sometimes I find a little ironic details in the newspaper in today's new york times there's an obituary for a man named paul schoon well who the heck is he fascinating to read this obituary because i wanted to read it because there's been a big debate about obama's you know mishandling of the politics of this that he's having a hard time selling this to the american people well we know why he's having a hard time selling it uh, there are Democrats, with, uh, which is a, a left-of-center party for the most part, that are opposed to intervention out of principle. If they voted against the Iraq war, they will probably vote against the Syrian war as a matter of conscience, if not policy. But the hypocrisy of the Republicans is outrageous on this Syrian question. Uh, because uh, in 1983, and we'll be coming up on the anniversary of the uh, <clears throat> Grenada invasion, you will recall that the uh, uh, Ronald Reagan invaded Grenada two days after the truck bombing in Lebanon. Which killed, I think, 250 Marines. Yeah. And Ronald Reagan didn't get any uh, congressional permission to put Marines into Beirut. He did so at, at the request and negotiations with Israel. Oh, the Likud party, to be precise. Yeah. And this, of course, was all in connection with these massacres that occurred at Shabar and Shatila in 1982. Um, the United States essentially replaced Israel as the occupying force of, mm-hmm. of Lebanon and then began lobbing shells into the Bekaa Valley. You could see that on TV. So Ronald Reagan's intervention in Lebanon was harebrained. He didn't get any congressional approval. Uh, and he certainly didn't get any congressional approval to go into Grenada. In fact, of course, Grenada was the feel-good, you know, yeah. antacid that you take after you've overeaten a, a, a rich, expensive meal, and uh, now you've got a tummy ache. Let's feel good with something easy and small. We can whoop ass and and win. Yeah, and it's of course an island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, nowhere near the United States. And of course, Reagan went on TV and suggested that this coup d'état that occurred uh, on uh, <clears throat> October nineteenth. Well, let's see. I'll read the obituary. It says, on October 14th, the Ronald Reagan, with Ronald Reagan in the White House, this is from the obituary in today's New York Times of Paul Schoon, who died at the age of 78, um, <clears throat> with Ronald Reagan in the White House, a more radical leftist faction within the Grenadian uh, government seized power with the Army's help. Mr. Bishop was arrested and replaced by Bernard Cord, 
the deputy prime minister, five days later after chanting protesters freed Mr. Bishop from house arrest, he and other ministers were killed by troops. At this point, Mr. Schoon, using his acknowledged constitutional authority, invited the United Nations and Caribbean nations in to intervene militarily. He was placed under house arrest. The coup jolted Washington. A new explicitly Marxist-Leninist government in Grenada raised the prospect of a third socialist center in the Western Hemisphere, joining Cuba and Nicaragua. <laughs> of course, neither of those countries uh, really represent economic powerhouses or with the possible exception of Cuba at that time, still somewhat supported by the Soviet bloc, uh, military powerhouses. The Reagan administration was also worried about the safety of some 1,000 American citizens on the island. Of course, their safety wasn't jeopardized until we invaded. Right. (laughs) And, of course, the United States used more military forces to keep out the media than... uh, actually going into the island because it turned out they had some Yosemite Sam six shooters and not too much else. Uh, On October 23rd, forces from the United States and Caribbean nations massed on Barbados, 150 miles east of Grenada, and 8,000 American troops and more than 300 from the Caribbean island of Grenada were involved in the invasion. The United States defended the action as a regional peacekeeping operation, although it lacked approval from the United Nations or the Organization of American States. On October 27th, Washington officials released a letter dated October 24th, the day before the invasion. And they said that Mr. Schoon had written requesting armed forces by the United States and Grenada Caribbean neighbors. The letter was seen as buttressing the case that the invasion was a multilateral police action, not an act of American imperialism. Ah, but Mr. Schoon, in his memoirs, his autobiography published in 2003, said that the letter of October 24th was not his. He said it had been written in Barbados and delivered to him on October 27th. But he did confirm... Uh, that Prime Minister Charles's statement that he had asked for intervention militarily uh, through diplomatic cha- uh, channels did occur. So in other words, in the Grenada invasion, the United States uses... A fake letter. A fake letter. What's new? Now, is there going to be any focus on this obituary in today's New York Times that tells the truth? Margaret Thatcher, in fact, we now know... Uh, from bios that have come out since she's passed away and recent scholarship on the the magic relationship between the Iron Lady and Ronald Reagan has revealed that she was furious at Reagan. She said Reagan didn't consult us. He informed us after the fact. (laughs) And she had an angry phone call with him Mm -hmm. about this as Grenada was a British colony, (laughs) so to speak. And you will recall that America's other excuse for going into Grenada was the Cubans were finishing up an airport that the British had started building and never finished. Right. All hyperbole and baloney. And all these Republicans that didn't utter a word of protest when Reagan invaded Grenada uh, with no congressional authority, no UN authority, no OS Organization of American States Authority. No, what he got was the request 
of five neighboring states. Miraculous. Conveniently dated the day before. Conveniently dated the day before. And we have all sorts of other revisionism regarding the Grenada War, but we'll talk about that a little more in the hmm, 30th anniversary is upcoming on that one, as well as the Lebanese truck bombing. So yeah, the, uh, the Lebanese truck bomb- bombing has uh, tendrils that go into a lot of other aspects yeah. of uh, the unfortunate series of events that uh, United States involvement in the Middle East uh, has has been, including the abduction at one point of a CIA station chief. Well, it was the first major attack by Hezbollah mm-hmm. on the United States. And this, this idea, and Obama and Kerry have been quite frank with the public, to their credit, um, we're not going to get involved in the Civil War. We're going to slap Assad up Assad against the head, and that's it. And there's no boots on the ground, and we're not going in. Because this, this Civil War that's going on in, in, in uh, Syria is obviously a, a proxy war that's got complicated tendrils that go all over the place. And you can't pick a side because uh, the Sunni-Shia thing. So how interesting that Assad in his, in his interview with, with uh, uh, Charlie, uh, Rose. Charlie Rose would, would indicate that the, uh, the, the, the rebels that you're supporting, the Free Syrian Army or whatever the heck it's called, um, has elements of al-Qaeda in it. There are no good choices. Right. So I think when I, I read a, an interesting piece by Edward Lutbach a couple weeks back, um, he's... He recommends that, uh, you know, there aren't going to be any winners in the Syrian civil war, that, that whoever wins. Uh, his, his, yeah, here, his, here's his editorial dated August 25th. In Syria, America loses if either side wins. Mm-hmm. He said at this uh, stage, a prolonged stalemate is the only policy option left. Well, there's some wisdom to that. Um, personally, this... You know, this intramural dispute between the Muslims that are fighting in about eight countries right now, Mm -hmm. it's not going away. Some air attacks from uh, our uh, aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean isn't going to tilt the balance in that ongoing carnage. Well, let's face it, the United States used the Iraq-Iran war uh, to its own advantage by playing the two off of each other sure. to regional foes uh iran a primarily shia country iraq under the rulership of saddam hussein uh of course there's a large shia population in the southeast of iraq but otherwise predominantly sunni uh and so this became uh the great game uh that of course uh, kissinger anticipated uh Back in the day with the tilt to Pakistan, even. Yeah, and of course, the Iran-Iraq war, <coughs> chemical weapons were used with the knowledge and awareness of the United States. Ronald Reagan was president. Ronald Reagan was giving Saddam Hussein intelligence. In 1987, he began flagging ships uh, in the uh, Persian Gulf. Mm-hmm. Seem to remember there was an attack on one, the USS Stark, I believe yep. was the name of the ship. Uh, while simultaneously conducting secret negotiations with Ayatollah Khomeini mm-hmm. to send them arms. Oh, this was, uh, he didn't know anything about the diversion of funds. <laughs> Why did these arms sales keep continuing? Uh, Ronald Reagan's never explained that, and neither have any of his supporters, who are now 
standing up. But you can rest assured if this policy in Syria works, these Republicans will be waving the military flag. Oh, yeah, we were, we were all in favor of it. Just like they switched their position in World War II right. so successfully after they opposed Roosevelt most of the way. It took Pearl Harbor for some of them to wake up. Well, you know, when you see 91% of them support Iraq and only 41 support America's position on Syria, you have to, of the, of the members of the GOP, you have to kind of question the consistency there. The people that are consistent are people like Rand Paul, who are simply isolationist libertarians. And there are liberal uh, members of the Democratic Party that oppose uh, intervention in the Middle East for obvious reasons. It hasn't worked. <laughs> it never will. And I saw it's not quite dead yet. Well, and one other thing is uh, we're going to need to come up with some other name uh, within the media uh, to describe this series of uh, upheavals uh, throughout the Arab world. Arab Spring isn't cutting it no. anymore. I mean, it was a, a passing reference to Arab nightmares, the Prague Spring, <laughs> which, of course, was a brief flourishing of freedoms and liberties uh, in the Czech Republic under the uh, Soviet regime era, which was ended uh, with a brutal uh, arrival of tanks in uh, the city of Prague. Uh, there really hasn't been an Arab Spring. Um, Egypt certainly is far from finished. Yeah. Um, and my only my only qualm with inter being America getting involved in Syria, and by the way, I think the British are going to have uh, another vote. Uh, they, they conducted their parliamentary vote before Kerry presented his evidence. So I expect the Redcoats to be involved. Uh, the Yankees and the Redcoats. That sounds like a, a football game to me. But uh, it won't be a football game, and it won't be a football game for Assad because he's not going to be able to stop these cruise missiles. Uh, just letting you know, you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I wanted to give a quick brain damage award out to uh, Mayor Bloomberg. I don't know what on earth he was thinking when he characterized Bill de Blasio's mayoral race in New York uh, City as racist. That's strange. Hmm. Bloomberg needs to take a chill pill. Maybe he needs to start drinking Coca-Cola or something. He's in a big gulp size. He's getting a little getting a little testy in his final final months. He didn't drink his juice. Too many uh wheat grass shakes for the man, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, we are out of time down here on Gray Matters. Uh do stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling is coming up next right here on this fine station. I'd like to thank Andrew for engineering once again this evening and stay tuned. That's Reverend Gary Davis in the background doing the candy man. Telling you it's time for Yazoo City Calling here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name's Jerry Mack, your host this evening for an hour-long excursion into the land of Delta Blues and early urban blues, performed and lived by the men and women who started it all. These particular recordings by the Reverend Gary, part of a classic blues collection 
of his called uh, The Guitar and Banjo of Various Instrumentals and recorded in 1964 in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Well, it's a beautiful late summer evening out there as temperatures rising in anticipation of a of the last sweltering 